Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Today's broadcast is episode number 138 on Friday, September 18th, 2009. My name is Cliff Slotnick, known as the Z-Man. Radio Joe's use will be uh, participating remotely from Studio C in India Lake, Pennsylvania. The always lovely environmental Ann Koalecki is in the studio, and of course our wingman Chris Boisel is at the controls. Today's segments include the microband trivia question, an interview with our guest McGregor Pierce, comments by our technical director, Dr. Dieter Weil, and our roundup. Radio Joe and I, along with the wingman, have been working on the iaqradio.com site, adding to the website and blog every week after the show. We've also changed the invitation and news announcement from IAQ Radio and IAQ Training Institute, and we hope you like the new look and the improved functionality. Now we'd like to thank our sponsors. We're delighted to have as our first association sponsor the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dryease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dryease is first in drying solutions. Visit them at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. To contact the show by phone, simply dial 724 444-7444 and enter our show ID, which is 1547. Press 1 and join the show. You can also download the show by going to our website, www.iaqradio.com, and following the link that says go to the show, or you can get the show from iTunes. Remember, you can get your IICRC continuing education credits, IAQ Council renewal, and now ABIH continuing education credits by emailing Radio Joe and requesting a quiz. Radio Joe's email is joe.use at 
iaqtraining.com. To make suggestions, special requests, or ask technical questions, you can either email Radio Joe or the Z-Man at cliffslotnick at unsmoked.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the microband trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is very easy. Simply email it to cliffz at prorestoreproducts.com. Now for the microband trivia question for Friday, September 18th, 2009. This fungal species is responsible for the vast majority of deaths due to ingestion of a poisonous mushroom. Name it. Okay. McGregor Pierce, MPH, has gained a national reputation for his mold investigation and reports. Mac's understanding of building science and how buildings work make him an expert investigator for mold and moisture. He is an environmental health consultant who specializes in the field of microbiological indoor air quality problems and has extensive experience in particulate, identifying and collecting molds and other biological contaminants and in the remediation of these problems. Good afternoon and thank you for joining us, Mac. Uh, hang on for your intro music. <laughs> Yes, that line forms on the right, babe, not that Maggie's back in Thanks for joining us, Mac. Hey, hi. Hey, got a question for you. Uh, as a more mature building diagnostician. Uh, Old, you mean? Yeah. So more mature means? Well, I think. Yeah, <laughs> less hair, right? <laughs> How have your inspection methods, equipment, and uh, opinions changed? I'd say that I've become less enamored with gadgets and more looking for, you know, looking for suspicious things. You know, I, I collect mold samples, and I collect a lot of them when I deal with mold problems in buildings. I have a degree in public health, and I'm interested in the exposure that people are getting. But I collect, I don't know that my methods are applicable to everyone because I collect an awful lot of samples because I have my own lab, and I analyze them for free. And I, I'm just doing, it's, it's pretty crude stuff. I see some of these lab reports from some of the more renowned labs, and, boy, they're, they're doing identification way beyond uh, what I have the time to bother with. I mean, it may be important information, but really I'm looking at a, a crude exposure. So anyway, that, I'm getting off the subject. Uh, 
I, 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 my moisture meters are my friends, and I know that they've gotten a lot better, but I have pretty simple ones, just a, a, a little pin moisture meter. I guess you're not, supposed, you're not supposed to say brand names unless they sponsor the show, right? I don't but, care. Uh, <laughs> well, the little, Del, the little Delmorst with no digital read, just an analog Delmorst, is what the guys use in the timber industry to test the kiln drying of wood. You can actually calibrate that little pin meter to tell you what species of wood you're testing for the moisture content. And I tell you, I like an analog needle swinging better than I like a digital readout because digital instruments have a tendency to turn to nonsense, to give you nonsense, and you don't know it. An analog instrument won't work with a dead battery. You know, there's a lot of tricks. The more gadgets you use, I think the thinner you're getting. There's a lot of high-tech IR equipment out there now, and I think some guys are really good at using IR to look for wet spots. So for moisture diagnosticians, people who are disaster restorers, I think a good skill with an IR camera is, is an important part of their set. But I don't tend to go out and look at water remediation as much as the aftermath. I was out, uh, I finally got my first pot house, marijuana house. Mm-hmm. And this guy had done the typical stuff. He drilled through the foundation and uh, tapped into the electrics to get it for free. And then he cut holes from the basement all the way up to the attic, and he grew the pot in the basement in wet conditions and then blew all the exhaust upstairs. And he got busted by the neighbors in the quiet suburb in the winter because they saw smoke coming out of the uh, out of the vents from the attic, and they thought the house was on fire. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how he got nailed. But this was two years ago, and the house has been shut up for two years. So they want me to go out there and tell them, what needs to be done? Well, you could burn the house down, or you could tear it all apart. But in fact, I walked in the door, the house had been shut up for months, and there wasn't a whiff. You know, you guys that do restoration know what I'm talking about. That You go into a house that's got a problem, it smells when you walk in the door. Your nose gets used to detecting. I'm not a bloodhound, but I can tell if something's funky or not. <laughs> I, tell people, I tell people with odors that I don't have the most sensitive nose, but if I can smell it, it's probably bad. <laughs> but this one wasn't. It didn't stink. And there was where we did see surface growth. So, so we're playing ball with the city inspector. The kid wants to buy the house. He's the one who engaged me. But the city inspector wanted that house tested and he wants me to test it after whatever recommendations i implement are are completed so he wants it tested twice we love that you know callback work <laughs> anyway i, I where, where there was visible mold we cut into the walls and didn't find a thing what we did find using tape lifts i i put press scotch tape up on a surface and then take it back to the lab and turn it transparent look at it under the microscope and that'll show you growth you can't see if you use a contact plate, a Petri dish media contact plate, and press it against a surface, you can get pretty high growth on a surface that when you tape lift off, you don't see any viable fungal structures at all. What is that telling us? Well, I think that when we see viable fungal structures, that's that, and then that, uh, that's like the OSB uh, ceiling in the basement. I want that scrubbed. You know, I can see some fungal structures growing on there, and you know, gosh, no matter how well he ventilates that basement, you're still going to have awful high humidity down there. And, now, how, 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 do, how do we clean that? You know, that's, that's, a, that's a challenge. And no, no instrument's going to tell you that. You see, what I'm getting at is that the gadgets were of minimal use here. You know, they, even my air sampler, what the air samples were pretty much much less than outside and not very important. What was important was taking contact plates and tape lifts and then, you know, analyzing sort of the settled dust content to see how, how much the dust is irritating in the house and then looking at actual surfaces using tape lifts. Now, you're, I think I collected, you know, maybe 10 square inches of tape off the entire house. <laughs> so you have to really be a good, good at picking what you're going to collect your sample from, right? Because you know, the sample is trying to estimate a, a greater reality. But 
you know, you're, you're kind of thinking, well, where could it be bad? Where would be the worst place it could be? Let's look there. And if it isn't bad there, then it's probably okay. So I'd say on a scale of 1 to 10, this pothouse probably was only about a level 3 problem. Why was the city inspector concerned about mold and not concerned about, uh, you know, chemicals, uh, you know, used in, in agriculture and so on and so <laughs> forth? Yeah, alachlorid. I don't think they do a lot of, uh, I don't know, you know, I don't know. I, what, what do they do for chemical treatment for that reefer? Uh, I don't think they grow it in dirt. I think they usually grow it in water. I'm not sure. It, it's, it's a wet process is all I know. Right. And as far as the chemicals, I don't know. Here's the problem with chemicals, Cliff, is that if you're going to test for a chemical, you have to use a gas chromatograph, mass spectroscopy type analysis. And those tests are expensive, and you almost have to test for a chemical. You can't, if you're going to test for pesticides, you can't just, there's no bulk pesticide assay. These machines are so sensitized that they only can tell you if it's DDT or not. It doesn't tell you that it's DDE. You know, it just doesn't tell you that. It, it, it only will tell you if it's DDT or not. So you have to test for each known, and Peter will tell you, you know, when you're sending these stuff off to labs, it's very, very expensive. So when you're testing for chemicals, unless you know, if you know what chemicals is, is of concern, like in cocaine meth labs, they know what chemicals to test for. There are a certain set of chemicals that they use to, to make that crap. And so they can test for those things to see how extensively the house has been contaminated by the meth lab. But... If you're just looking for unknown agricultural chemicals, that's just astronomically expensive. God knows how many houses have their water tested and it passes muster, but there are seven or eight horrible things there. But you can't, if you can't taste them or smell them, you don't know they're there. And if you don't know what they are, you can't test for them. Joe. Yeah, Mac, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Pleasure. I, I've got a, a question, and we, we were talking a little earlier, and I noticed one of the questions Cliff has on here is, what, what do you consider to be the most, uh, or what, can, I guess it's what mold do you consider to be the most irritating allergen? Well, it, it ha if you took, if we could take Fred or Julie, we could tell which allergen is the most, which mold would be the most irritating to them. There are bulk statistics that, some of these outdoor molds, I mean, alternaria, alternata is real irritating to an awful lot of people who have mold sensitivities. But this stuff is so subjective. You know, we don't really know that much about the immune system. And a lot of what we know is because of AIDS, trying to solve the puzzle of what the heck this disease was, has led to an awful lot of research on how the immune system works. But, you know, your, your body's trying to sort out self from non-self and people who have are more sensitive to things, actually have more reactive, aggressive immune systems that, quote-unquote, overreact to what would be a trivial exposure. A cat hops in my lap and licks my arm, so what? Somebody else, that cat spit and cat skin just sends them just tingling off the chart with sneezing and splitting headaches. The next person isn't irritated by cats, but they're irritated by parakeet, by bird dander. You understand what I'm saying? It's not, there's not one you can pick out. And as far as poison, like you're question there at the beginning i know the answer <laughs> um, that uh, that uh, you know, it, it, it's not like that i mean there's there's not really one reputable medical journal article on anyone being poisoned by being in a moldy house unless they're eating the stuff all the, all the research i've seen on toxic mold has been done pretty much on uh, animal feeding studies i did i read a study by a renowned indoor air quality expert who gets published all the time he's a big shot but about Stachybotrys poisoning the animal and causing nasal bleeding, but they were shoving the spores up its nose in big 
blobs. I mean, <laughs> people don't get that kind of exposure unless they're going around with a drinking straw and you know, snorting the stuff off the wall like a junkie. You wouldn't get that kind of an exposure. So when it comes to poisonous mold, I back off of that. I guess stachybotrys, I, houses that have stachybotrys in them tend to have make allergic sufferers miserable, but houses that have stachybotrys usually are very wet. And when stachybotrys chartarum is in there, usually there's a lot of other stuff in there too. Could be bacteria, who knows, wet houses. We do know that houses that are more damp seem to make people more miserable, regardless of their health conditions. You know, Max, speaking of stachybotrys, you've been known to uh, demonstrate the dose risk response of stachybotrys chartarum to a group of interested uh, parties. How do you do that? Well, what I've done in the past is just take a piece of it, a piece of drywall with some stack of butcher on it and lick my finger, rub it on her and lick my finger again. It's not that poisonous. <laughs> and well, I, I'm told I'm not the only one that's done that. Actually, you know, some pretty renowned physicians and stuff have done it. They weren't copying me. They probably did it before me. You know, but the thing is, I think the thing that stack of is really most toxic to is the wallets of the people who are paying for abatement because you read some of this. I know a local guy here, he, he charged somebody 1200 bucks to cut out a foot of drywall below a leaking toilet valve on the wall in a, in a multifamily building. He had the space suits and the airlock chambers and everything to cut out one square foot of drywall because this was poisonous mold. So there's been a lot of money made on it. And so you know, and panic mongering. I know something really bad for you that you don't know about. Everybody's so into trying to make their own life safer that, that it can sucker people into spending more money and being more worried about things that really aren't that big of a concern. Annie? Yeah, I'm just curious. Um, what does mold have in common with ground soil? Taking it off the wall, you know, what, what does that have to do with it in soil, though? Well, mold is an important component of the soil. The soil is probably the largest tissue in the body of the earth, and it's, it's the vital tissue that sends up new life. And so everything that dies turns back into dirt, and then from the dirt springs the new life. That's pretty much the cycle, and maybe a little different in the ocean, but you know what I'm saying. And the molds are an important part of the breakdown team in the, you know, the decomposition of spent life turning it back into fertile material. I mean, if you have a dead raccoon, you can't grow plants in that. But once the dead raccoon rots into the ground, it produces fertile soil. And they take, there's just a big scandal about the agricultural industry. They're taking composting dead animal carcasses and farm fields, and the runoff from that is probably pretty harmful. But the soil, the point is, will turn that dead cow eventually into something useful again. The point I make is that you probably know someone in your own life who's just such a worthless, lying, miserable, thieving, troublemaking, unlucky person, but even they, when they die, will be of use, because they'll turn back into dirt. <laughs> wow, that's hard to believe. But, but, the, believe but the most, <laughs> when you take dirt and you culture it, I don't care, you know, unless it may be, maybe some kind of sand might be sterile, but I can't think of a piece of dirt that I haven't taken and cultured and gotten just millions of colonies per gram. The dirt soil is just full of all kinds of fungal spores. It's like loaded for bear. Anything that falls into the dirt will turn to dirt, and especially organic matter will turn into nice nice composted stuff that's available for and so there has to be a pretty good arsenal that's evolved over time to chew up all of the various nutrients and molds are super adaptable within even within a single fungal colony there's evolution going on because they have multi the cells are 
are multinucleate. There's more than one, you know, each, uh, traditional biological cell, you have the nucleus with the DNA in it, and then the, around the cell, you have the, and then you have the extracellular medium around the cell in the human body, whatever. But in the molds, they have more nucleuses, and they, these nucleuses are all over, and they're constantly dividing and making new ones, and mistakes are made in the replication of DNA, and that's what evolution is all about. Most mistakes just don't work. But if that mold is a little, involves a nucleus that sends out and makes the, the digestive chemicals that are a little more effective for that particular kind of paper that that particular colony is growing on, you're going to have an evolutionary change in that fungus right there in that little microhabitat. And if over time the environment around that area is changing to have more to favor that kind of nutritional digestion over another, then that, that mold will evolve in that direction. That's what nature's all about is progressive evolution. I kind of, you know, it's like this, it's this smartness that's built into the whole biological system. I'm not talking about in, the intelligent planning argument, but, geez, you've got to hand it to, to the universe. It's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> and life on Earth sure is. The more you study it, the more amazing it is. The more complicated it is, the more you realize how little we know. I was listening to a lady on NPR saying that they, when they started doing this DNA analysis where you could look at the you'd see the little tags in the DNA from a, a, you take a gram of soil or a chunk of human tissue. We, uh-oh. Are we off or what? Yeah. Okay, so let me Joe's still on? Okay. Welcome to Talk Shoe. Please enter the call. Your entry is not valid or your call is not scheduled at this time. One five five four seven seven. Welcome to Talk Shoe. Your entry is not valid or your call is not scheduled at this time. Welcome to Talk Shoe. Please enter the Your entry is not valid or your call is not scheduled at this time. One one five four seven seven. Welcome to Talk Shoe. Please enter Your entry is not valid or your call is not scheduled at this time. One one five five four seven. Welcome to TalkShoe. Please enter the call ID followed by the pound key. Your entry is not valid or your call is not scheduled at this time. 
one one five four four seven. Welcome to TalkShoe. Please enter the call ID followed by the pound key. You may access the call up to 15 minutes before its scheduled start time. Enter your PIN followed by the pound You are now joining the call. Recorded live. You are unmuted. For the same research topics. And right now, there's a feeling that if you could identify the D, if we can understand more about DNA, we're going to understand all the secrets of life. And so they're all studying DNA. So there's a lot of research going into that. So I think we're going to find fungal ID being made ever cheaper and easier through this genetic analysis. The, the cheaper hasn't gotten there yet, so I haven't gotten involved in it. I'm kind of a low-rent guy. Uh, we're back. I think we had a, uh, a failure from, from where Skype disconnected us, and uh, now we're back. Well, so it was just us talking, huh? That's right. <laughs> we were doing just fine here, Cliff, and everybody seems to be chatting, so we're okay. Oh, yeah, they can hear you. It's just that they couldn't hear us, and, you know, we kind of dropped our recording, but, but we're back again. So, um, you know, that, that's good. Um, you know, talking about Stacky that you had mentioned before, how does a – and this is in quotes, Mac, toxic molds such as Stachybotrys charterum differ from a substance such as carbon monoxide in regard to toxicity. Well, the, the lesion, you know, the toxin has, has, a, has a place where it's active. You know, what, what it does, carbon monoxide it makes it so you can't get oxygen to your tissue, so it basically suffocates you without you knowing it, you're being choked to death. Yeah? Okay. Now, Stachybotrys produces symptoms, you know, bleeding. It causes uh, uh, the bleeding, and it, it could be an acute poison. I, the, the, there was a guy here in the University of Minnesota in our, in our agricultural department who was working to try to militarize Stachybotrys. So it is poisonous, but the acute poisonous lesion, I don't know that much about it. As far as what it'll do as an acute toxin, you know, like something that you keel over dead in five minutes from being exposed to it type of thing. I don't know. I know that, you know, animals that eat the stuff, you know, go vomiting up blood and uh, get lesions in their lungs and, you know, pneumonia-like symptoms of blood in their lungs and that kind of thing. Not, not like uh, anthrax, but, you know, some kind of poison. Like I, re I don't know enough about that to discuss it. I could run and get a book and look it up, but then so could you. Okay. All right. Annie? Um, yeah. How fast do mold spores settle in still air? Oh, that's a good question. There's a wonderful book that you can find at used bookstores for about 100 bucks nice. <laughs> called The Microbiology of the Atmosphere by a guy named Gregory. His last name is Gregory. You can get it on Amazon. I got a copy. Then a friend, I told him I was bragging to a friend of mine, showing it to him. Here he had one he got for 50 cents at a used book sale, so go figure. But anyway, Gregory has a nice article on the settling velocities of various kinds of fungal spores, not focusing on just the molds, but, you know, all kinds of fungal spores, mushroom spores, all that. And when you get down to about, in that, you know, below five microns in size, now a micron is a millionth of a meter, a period at the end of the sentence in the Pittsburgh Post Intelligencer is about 100 microns. So when you get down to about five microns, then the 
thick viscosity of the air retards the fall of those particles so that they fall at rates of less than a yard an hour. They're not really slow. So that's what makes them such nasty little buggers when they're knocked up into the air in large numbers. They take quite a while to settle out. And because of their small size, they're easily deposited deep, deep down in the respiratory tract where they can produce various kinds of mischief if they're left untended. Joe? Yeah, Mac, I'm, I'm curious. Um, we were talking a little earlier about uh, energy rating and, and how people uh, use this as, as a method for uh, they depressurize the home as a method for trying to figure out where the air gaps are. And I know you're a building science guy. And, uh, in fact, you were just honored up at the summer camp here this year as the guy trying to bring the, the indoor air quality and the building science people together. Um, I'm curious, what would your would you caution people doing that type of work at all uh, to investigate the area and maybe change the way they do their investigation based on possible um, let's say, contaminants within a home? Well, first of all, I have to tell you, I, I, I have a bias in this. The, guy, the, the people that make the Minneapolis, the, the Minneapolis Energy Conservatory makes the blower door. And the blower door is basically a rubber sheet that fits into a doorway, has some brackets on it, so you can make it an airtight fit and block off an outside door to the home. Then inside, in that membrane, is an elastic hole where you can stick a fan about three feet in diameter. A nice size fan will hang in this elastic membrane. Then you hook up pressure gauges and flow gauges to the fan, turn the fan on, and you measure how much air you have to blow out of that house to create a certain degree of suction. Now, if the house is super airtight, you just have to blow a little bit out of there, and the house will kind of deflate. I mean, you'll, you'll be creating negative pressure. If the house is super leaky, you can blow a hurricane of air out that door and not create much depressurization because there's so many holes and cracks in the house. You can't run a blower door test with a window open or it'll compromise the whole test. Okay, so this blower door is a valuable tool for weatherizers because it shows us you know, how leaky the house is. If you leave the fan running, you can go around with a smoke pencil and find out where the air is leaking in. It's fascinating. People have no idea the leaks in their houses. I remember the first time a guy ran one for me, and he showed me the recessed lights that went from the kitchen up into the attic, and there was just air pouring down through those recessed light cans. Then we went up in the attic, and there, right, this is in Minnesota, cold climate, there right above the recessed light was mold all over the oriented strand board because warm, humid air from the kitchen is going up and condensing on the wood in the it's a valuable tool. Now, when you depressurize a house, do you run the risk of sucking all kinds of nasty stuff out of all the cracks and crevices in the home? I went down to Iowa and tested a bunch of houses, and we really didn't find that. We, we, I, was just, I was just doing mold tests, pre- and post-mold sampling. That's all. That's affordable and easy. I, you know, we weren't testing for all of the different allergens and irritants. But here's the basic logic of the argument that the blower door isn't a threat, and that is that if air is leaking into a house in response to a fan depressurization, it's going to tend to go in through the biggest cracks and crevices. And those biggest cracks and crevices aren't the places where mold grows. Mold grows on damp still surfaces where there isn't a lot of air blowing back and forth generally speaking so you know the, you're, you're, the, the idea that you're going to suck a bunch of crud into the house by from the from the building the dirty building envelope well i think it's unlikely to be the case we had houses where there was basement walls were covered with mold but when we put the blower door on that isn't where the air leaked into basically when you blow air out of a house air has to come into the house to make it up and that makeup air doesn't come in 
running along the basement wall, lifting the spores off the wall and blowing them into the house. It comes in through the big cracks and crevices. So I'm not as concerned about it as some. On the other hand, there's been some uh, legal cases. People have been sniffing around about these blower doors, and so you can become a plaintiff's expert and make quite a case that it's incredibly dangerous and you can get on a witness stand and charge them your hourly rate. Try to charge the lawyer, whatever the lawyer wants to hire you to be an expert. Try to find out what he charges and charge more. <laughs> but we've, we, had a, we had a case in Iowa. The reason they hired me was some, you know, you know, juries can be awful stupid. And they wound up giving this guy thousands of dollars because they put an exhaust fan in his base, in his bathroom to give him a little bit of exhaust ventilation to, you know, get more fresh air into his house. And he claimed that it sucked mold out of his walls and made him sick. And that, I don't know what they had for experts and everything, but they lost the case. They wanted to have the insurance company settled. They gave this guy $25,000. That was sad. little 40, 50 CFM bath fan made the man sick. If you're that wimpy, you should probably be taken out and shot. <laughs> but that's what happened. And, uh, and uh, so there is a case that people try to make that depressurizing a, house, a house is dangerous. I've certainly never seen it in all of my experience with people using blower doors and using them myself. I've never seen anyone go, oh, man, what did you do? Oh, basically all you've done is brought fresh air into the house, Joe. That's what a blower door does. It, doesn't, it, it sucks air into the house to replace the air it's blowing out. And outdoor air, well, I suppose if there's something dangerous, there's an ammonia cloud from an overturned radio railroad car outside the door, it might be dangerous. Okay, uh, we have to stop for halftime. So we'd like to thank our sponsors. I'm here. Yeah, they, it looks like they fell off again. Let, uh, uh, Mac, let's just keep going here. Sure. They must be having some trouble with uh, Skype. He yeah. said, I'm gonna, well, let's hear from our sponsors, and then the air went dead. But if, yeah. if the audience is there, let's keep going. All right, let's keep rolling. Well, here. let's try to hear from the sponsors again. Can you hear me? Uh, oh, there you go. You're okay, back. we're okay. back. Go ahead. We're delighted to have as our first association sponsor the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Drys Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Drys is first in drying solutions. Visit them at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. And now to our technical director, Dr. Dieter Wow. Uh, comments on the first half of the show, Dieter. Well, about a hundred or so, but uh, uh, anyway, I agree 100% with Mac. Uh, uh, if you take these wonderful, wonderful samples, and I get phone calls, they say, Dieter, what do you think that one part per billion of XYZ does to the human body? I don't know. I don't think there's a toxicologist in the world who can do that. And like Mac said, uh, yeah, the human nose is a damn good instrument. It's pretty well made. And um, 
a common sense will help you quite frequently. And I agree with him that I have seen people, you know, making money hand over fist, and I could have given them an answer for free or one beer, uh, imported beer, that would be. Um, that is, um, yeah, it, it is crazy what we are doing with these black boxes, and it can be done a hell of a lot easier uh, with other instruments. And the other thing, uh, there are two, two things. If you don't know anything about toxicology and you have never taken a course in toxicology, please do not compare toxicology, uh, toxicological indicators of A with number B. If you don't know where it comes from, uh, you have absolutely no idea what the hell you are doing. During the last, not two years ago, I gave a talk at the summer camp up in, uh, in uh, Massachusetts. And I have a wonderful, wonderful chart on settling velocity of particles in air. I showed it on the board. Nobody was, what the, who the hell is interested in settling velocity? 50% of the people didn't know what it was. There is a wonderful chart available uh, from a good friend of mine, Bob Gutsman, under BGI Incorporated. That is B like in Bravo, G like in Golf, and I like in India, Incorporated. He's in Massachusetts. He gave me years ago a pack of 100 of these sheets where you get settling velocities from particles of 0.001 to 100 micrometers and with correction factors, and there are slip correction factors, uh, uh, due to a couple of things that has something to do with the molecules in air. And Bob is probably going <clears> to <throat> get you one of those for free. If not, I, uh, I guess I can scan them in, and I'm sure he will not be offended if I, uh, uh, I gave them to my students, and I can give Bob a call and ask him whether they are available. So if you want to know what a, uh, a, a sphere of density one and 10 micrometers in diameter, how fast it settles, all you have to do is look at the chart and you got it. Don't compare toxicological indicators. Yeah, if you look at, uh, yeah, you have to look at the biological half-life in the body. I would like to know, I would like to know what carbon monoxide is in a coal mine in which I uh, would go right now right now and i really don't give a damn of what uh, is happening to me if i inhale uh, you know one microgram of uh, coal dust uh, you can't compare those two because of the biological half-life the one is right there the other one is you know, down the road so you gotta watch that you just can't use in the indices of one and compare it to the other and say this one is a thousand times more toxic than that one. That's bullshit, as they say in the field. <laughs> All right. Always uh, great input by Dr. Dieter. Got a question for you, Mac. Uh, I've heard you uh, use these terms, stupid, stupid squared, and stupid cubed. Can you tell our listeners? So the, the, the robot voice was telling me I was unmuted, and so I didn't hear your question, Cliff. Okay, I'm sorry. I've, I've heard you use these terms, stupid, stupid squared, and stupid cubed. Can you tell our listeners uh, what you mean by that? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. That was, yeah, I used to remember that. Well, with what we know about 
carpet as a, an accumulator of crud, it's probably stupid to put carpet on the floors of a school. Kids have dirty shoes. Kids are active. Kids spill things. It, and they're crowded. There's a lot of, lot of feet walking around on the carpet. So it's stupid to choose carpet. But to me, that, 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 that's actually the cube value. The stupid thing is to go and pour a slab, a concrete slab for your school, and not properly prepare the site before you pour the slab so that the settling weight of the concrete makes the slab of the building the lowest point on the entire area. So the football field and the parking lot all drain towards the slab because they didn't build it up on a crown. That's stupid. You know, what's stupid squared? Stupid, oh, stupid, so stupid squared is then to carpet that wet concrete, and then stupid cubed is to glue the carpet down so that when it inevitably gets all foul and nasty, you can't clean it. You can't get rid of it. You're stuck with it. It's incredibly expensive. So that's the stupid cube thing. Pouring the wet slab, putting carpet on it, and then gluing the carpet down. It's kind of like, you know, you don't want your last words to be, hey, watch this. Well, that's kind of an example of that. You're just you're sort, of, you're sort of pushing against nature, and nature doesn't get offended, and nature doesn't get, you know, but nature tends to prevail in the end. And if you go against the laws of physics, you're asking for it. Joe? That's what the stupid cube did. we got a text question here, Mac. What, uh, what do you say to homeowners when they ask um, what can be purchased to help clean the air in their homes? I tell them that the best strategy is to, as Peter would, I'm, I think, would agree with me, if you really are concerned about a level of a contaminant, you should probably wear the appropriate kind of respirator. When you try to clean the whole house with filtration, you get some net effect, but you're better off to remove the source than to try to protect the occupant. Now, on the, other, on, on the opposite side of this, we are... Uh, currently doing a project with a bunch of uh, low-income housing with asthmatic sufferers and we're putting filtration in. we're putting you know merv 12 filters on the return grills in these four stair homes and uh we'll see we'll see whether they produce a benefit uh, but basically especially those various kinds of chemical air cleaners my opinion is that they don't do much good but when people have a sick kid they get desperate and they get are easily conned and to, you know this fear goes into well, for a lot of these products now we, we they sell vacuum cleaners that are excellent air cleaners and they aren't necessarily the most expensive vacuum cleaners consumer reports reviews them. so it's a good the best air cleaning device i can think of would be first to get rid of your carpet and then have a good vacuum cleaner those would be the best defenses i think air filtration for the home uh, people spend an awful lot of money on it and I don't know that the benefits have been clearly demonstrated, but removing the dust from the home one way or another is a smart thing to do. But instead of trying to get the dust out of the air, if we can remove the settled dust from the countertops, from the carpets, from the floors, it will have fewer chances to get into the air. I don't know. That's my theory. We're, we're all dead. Are you still there? Yep, yep. We're, we're still okay. here. I got a question. They were, they were, they were odd. <laughs> Sleeping. <laughs> Playing solitaire. Matt, can you contrast uh, two different houses? One house has a crawl space with a uh, dirt floor. The other one has a crawl space and it has a cement floor. Uh, based with one with dirt and one with a cement floor, if we had fungal colonization on the floor joists and on the subfloor, uh, what do you think would be different in terms of uh, species? Any idea? In terms of the species? Right. Oh, gosh. I've looked at so many of these, and I haven't seen a clearly demonstrated. Uh, the difference in species would be a function of 
the water activity on the surfaces that are being colonized. And the dirt crawl space certainly is going to contribute a much higher level of moisture to the uh, crawl space environment you know, than, than, the, than the concrete, under, you know, it, all other things being equal. If you have the same site, you know, you're better off to have a concrete floor. You know, a, good, a good poly barrier on the crawl space floor works as well. All the seams have to be sealed and has to be well attached to the sides. But a good, good, good plastic sheeting. What I often see, though, is instead of dirt, they've done the, basically the plastic trash bag approach where there's just a bunch of pieces of plastic thrown willy-nilly down all over the dirt and the seams aren't sealed and there's bare spots. That'll contribute just about as much moisture as the bare soil. Soil is a huge moisture contributor. Now, the crawl space tends to be cooler, and so it's more easy for moisture to condense down there. And we have cold requirements that are just a disaster in the southeastern United States where they require outdoor air ventilation for that crawl space. The idea being that you'll ventilate the contaminants out. And in fact, what they do is they send in air, hot, humid summer air with a dew point in the 70s into a crawl space that's cool down in the 60s. So they're basically irrigating the crawl space and just you know, aggravating mold problems. We want that crawl space, whether it's got a plastic floor or a concrete floor, to be the same air body as the rest of the house. We want to have indoors and we want to have outdoors. The crawl space is kind of, if it's an iffy zone, like with a dirt floor, that's a terrible idea. And I've seen, the more, basically what I see, the difference between a dirt crawl space and a concrete crawl space is the air samples collected in the crawl space and often in the floor up above are just you know, they're right off the charts. They peg my sampler. When you have bare dirt in damp, nice, warm, damp conditions in the summer, that crawl space is just a mold pit. And that air from that crawl, that moldy air finds its way upstairs, and I find it in the carpets and everything. A paved crawl space tends to have lower mold levels. But if that crawl space is cool and damp, concrete floor or not, it'll still grow mold on the trusses. You know, and on, actually, you could actually culture mold right out of the concrete. Off the concrete, I don't know if that's settled spores or if it's actually growing in there. But, you know, crawl spaces have to be treated proper. We have to keep them dry enough. Uh, we, we're putting dehumidifiers in a lot of the crawl spaces in our house program I was talking to you about, our research program. Let me ask a question. Uh, I, I want to go back to the air leakage issue. And um, which is, which is going to be a healthier home, one that leaks a lot and has heat loss or one that is very tight? leak resistant and energy efficient well assuming that the outdoor air doesn't see i i have a number of friends that really have to minimize the amount of outdoor air they bring into their homes because they're so allergic and they're much more comfortable with a clean indoor environment where they've used appropriate materials and prevented moisture problems to have no you know just enough ventilation to keep the air fresh other people you know hell they love to go camping sleep in a tent now there's a there's an un that tent isn't very energy efficient, but most almost everybody feels good when they're camping unless their butt gets sore from sleeping on the ground. Um, the fact is, we just can't afford to build these leaky old energy hog homes anymore. Now, if you live, I take this back. If you live in Monterey, California, you know the, the weather half the time you can have the windows open, you know, because it's just perfect. The weather's perfect on the coast of California. If you get not too, if it never gets too hot, never gets too cold. But that's pretty unusual to have a climate like that. The areas where they grow coffee around the world are in the tropics, but they're in the highlands. So they have year-round highs of 75 and year-round low of 68. Now, there you, don't, there you can have uh, – that's the best of both worlds. But in a, house where you, in a climate where we have to heat, like Minnesota, you have to make your houses tight and energy efficient as much as you can because you can't afford to live in them otherwise. And if you're broken, driven out into the street with a shopping cart and ragged clothes, you're, that's bad for your health, too. 
What about uh, what are your thoughts on bringing in mechanical ventilation when you tighten up these homes? Well, that's always the the the, the, the mantra is to uh, make the house tight and then ventilate right. So you have to have mechanical ventilation. And the ASHRAE study that's going on now about just how much ventilation is required is a fascinating debate. I get the emails and throw in my two cents worth once in a while. I think mechanical ventilation has a lot of potential. But on the other hand, we're going up to these houses I was discussing in my study, low-income housing in the woods in northern Minnesota. And here they put in HRVs, you know, heat recovery ventilators. You know what they are, Joe, right? Oh, yeah. Bring in. yeah. And the intakes are completely clogged with cottonwood and, you know, tree pollen and stuff like that. So there's, there's, there's dust and bird feathers, so there's absolutely no fresh air coming into the house. We've seen heat recovery ventilators where they ran plumbing piping right across the door, the access door, so you can't open the access door to change the filters. The, you know, the fancier the ventilating equipment, the smarter the operator has to be, and homeowners as a group aren't very smart. They want to use the door key to get in and out and the credit card to pay the bills and the light switches and plumbing faucets. That's about it. They're not interested. And a lot of this ventilating equipment to work properly needs to be maintained and has to be operated properly. That's why we're getting big on just having passive ventilation where you just have an exhaust fan, a couple of exhaust fans just running all the time to draw fresh air into the house. Now, we are running risks of drawing horrible, dangerous crud from places like you described, but it's a risk we're willing to take because they've got to have some kind of fresh air. Otherwise, last week's burnt toast will still stink. Modern houses are being built tighter and tighter and tighter, whether whether you think it's good or not. So we have to have ventilation to go with it. And the trick is to make the ventilation simple and effective. Effective ventilation is ventilation that is provided to the entire place, not just a column of fresh air being dragged from a fan from one hole in one side of the house to the fan. We want to make sure that the whole house gets ventilation. And there's a lot of tricks and strategy to that. I, I'm a firm believer in building these tight. I, you know, we've got to save the energy. I mean, we've got to we've got to do a better job building. I agree with your mechanical ventilation. I'm curious on your comment with the MERV 12. I believe you said filters that you were putting into these low-income homes. How are you ensuring that they are changed regularly? Yeah, there, there's a there's a little gadget on there that tells them when it needs to be changed out, and, uh, and hopefully they'll respond to that. You know, we have to educate these homeowners. Got it. Thank you, Mac. Mac, uh, do you have any idea on the pressure um, of water moving through cement by capillary action, what it might be? I've heard Joe Skibrook say that it can lift a ton of weight a mile in the air. You know, it's a powerful force. Then i got these high-density concretes. I've got a guy that's been talking to me about how he thinks that this high-density concrete will prevent capillary wicking of moisture through it because there's no capillary spaces in the concrete. Now, that's... I don't know how much you guys know about that. I'm just, just on the learning curve myself. But generally, uh, co concrete sucks water just like a drinking straw, and it's a powerful force. So those interior basement coatings, you know, they're quite, they have questionable value. If there's a lot of hydrostatic pressure, a lot of moisture moving through that concrete, it'll blow the coating right off the side of the wall. You know, and if, so the only way it'll work is if there isn't a problem. We have, I have a lot of cures like that. Though. Medicine that'll keep you healthy if you're not sick. <laughs> Matt, can you comment on moisture problems uh, in houses related to windows uh, and window installation and related to Tyvek? Well, I don't think Tyvek causes window problems. But uh, Tyvek is, you know, it's, it's basically an air barrier for the outside of the house. It's not made, and it's something of a moisture barrier, but what they've done, the next step up in building new homes is to build these pan flashings 
into the window assemblies where you have this rubberized material that wraps at least the lower half of the window so because all windows leak to some extent now in my old house wherever i've had to do any kind of surgery on my hundred year old home those windows are in perfect shape and so is the wood behind them it's all perfect but i spend a pretty good energy bill every winter drying my house out so where it does leak the leaks don't cause any problems because the moisture doesn't stay in that dead, still, quiet little pocket where it can produce rot and misery. New houses do have such pockets. So what they do is they, the window is no longer just set into a bare opening or a Tyvek-wrapped opening. It's set into a rubber pan that's made to drain any moisture that gets through the window or around the window back out over that weather-resisted barrier, over that, that Tyvek and so the, the, the moisture comes, if it gets through the window it's manufactured itself or through the install, you know, the flashing around the side, it'll be caught by this drainage pan at the bottom, this pan flashing made of rubberized material, and then that'll drip out over that and then drip out over the Tyvek and hopefully then evaporate back to the outside through some kind of uh, ventilation space that's been made. We're big up here on uh, having uh, houses that have real good, I like ventilated cladding. Where the you know moisture gets back out, it can add, the cladding isn't right up tight against the side of the house. We just had terrible millions of dollars of disasters with stucco here in my climate. Modern all old houses in my neighborhood are stucco and they're all fine. They're obviously good because there'd be a blank space where it rotted away. There aren't any blank space blank spaces. My I live in an urban neighborhood. All the houses are hundred year old stucco and they're all perfect. But the new ones, the cul de sacs out there in the suburbs, are just rotting at a terrible rate because you've got the that concrete stucco smooshed up against the uh, sheathing and just rotting it away. You know, and Tyvek will not save that. Putting Tyvek in between wet concrete and uh, engineered wood product and four by eight panels doesn't save the wood. It can't. It's not designed to do that. Now, if there's if this if the uh, stucco is hung with a ventilation space in between, then we have then we have the ability for the place to dry out. We break the contact between the wet exterior cladding and the interior space. You have the same thing with brick goes right through the brick and it goes even more through the brick grout and it tra- if, it's, if it has the opportunity to transfer right to the inside I'm, I'm dealing with a big high-rise building with all million dollar condo units and the diagnostics on this one you don't need tools just get down on your hands and knees and smell the outlet plates just smells like moldy bread inside the walls they've got brick right up against the sheathing and this is a 1970s building where the sheathing was paper covered sheetrock drywall paper covered drywall and the brick is right up against it, and just it's, it's a disaster. There's nothing. There's not not even any Tyvek. There's nothing. There's no drainage space at all. So the brick soaks the, the gypsum board, which then rusts out the metal supports that the gypsum board is fastened to. The big steel pieces are rusting, and oh, what a disaster! Yeah, we need to make buildings that breathe and are ventilated to the outside that still have an airtight inner envelope, an energy efficient inner envelope with a breathable exterior system. We've got to be able to kick that moisture out. I think a lot of the exciting research that's being done now is on exterior insulation systems where we put up our cladding and then put a bomb-proof rubber membrane over the, over the not the cladding, put the sheathing, whether it's OSB or whatever, you know, dense glass, the, the, the fiberglass sheetrock, whatever, and put the, put the waterproofing over that and then... Um, we put a foam insulation on that and then furring strips and then hang our cladding on that. Now, that's a system that's just... Then the wall cavities aren't going to be full of insulation. They're free for use for utilities. We don't get the condensation and the issues in the wall cavities, and then our sheetrock on the inside is safe. I think that's an exciting notion. We're seeing houses being built that way. It's a new skill set. 
you know, when you're fastening that clamming, you're running a screw that's sometimes 10 inches long to get it all the way in. You know, and guys have to be good to, good to do that, but they can learn. Mac, Mac, you lost me for a moment there. Now, how is your old home stucking put on different from the 70s version? I don't have stucco. I got oh. a cedar siding. But, but the, the stucco in the old timers, they would have a, either a mesh or a wood lath, and they would press the stucco up against that, and then behind the metal or the wood lath was a tar paper, real old-fashioned wrinkly tar paper. And apparently that wrink, and then that wrinkly tar paper was fastened to wood boards, shiplap or however they were, the wood boards were installed. The wood boards are installed with the studs. Then you have an empty wall cavity and then plaster walls on the inside. And that system, just for whatever reason, that's got a lot of different places to dry out. First of all, interior plaster is much more resistant to moisture problems than sheetrock. Drywall. I shouldn't say sheetrock. Drywall. Then you've got the stud cavity. You know, it's hollow, so you can lose a lot of energy through there. And then you've got wood boards, which are wood is a wonderful water-resistant building material, whereas engineered wood products aren't. They're, they're vulnerable to moisture problems. They can perform structurally like wood if they're kept dry. Then we have that wrinkledy tar paper, which provides sort of a drainage plane, a break, a disconnect between the concrete stucco and the wood boards. But I've seen concrete stucco trawled right onto wood boards in old buildings in northern Minnesota. Gee, they seem to be in fine shape. You know, the wood hasn't rotted at all. So it's, uh, now maybe, maybe they just burned a wood stove inside and had dried that house out all winter with energy loss. Sure. You know, I'm, I'm speculating here. I don't have the, the, the knowledge to, to really know that. All I know is that we have an awful lot of failures in our modern stucco, and our old ones are all here. Maybe the old guys knew how to do it right, Mac. Well, they did, but they also remember those are less energy-efficient homes, and when you start tightening up stucco homes, you might be creating problems. But I've never seen a good study done on what happens when we weatherize stucco homes, blow cellulose insulation into all the wall cavities. Do we reduce the drying potential? There hasn't been a, a good study done that anybody's shown me on that. You know, probably because when people get those homes weatherized, it's done on such an individual basis that it's hard to collect the information. And if it's done properly, the cosmetic, you know, they drill, sometimes they drill holes right in the stucco on the outside, but they hide them. So we don't know what houses have been insulated and what happens unless the people self-report. So each one's an experiment. Yeah, every building is a science experiment, isn't it? <laughs> And there's, and there's too many uncontrolled variables, and the home, the, the person who's paying the mortgage is funding the research. Got it, Mac. Cliff, are you still with us? Yep, I'm still there. Ready um, to go to the Rambo? Absolutely. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up. Move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw Okay, for our roundup, we're going to go to Dieter, then to Joe, then to Annie, and then I'll do cleanup. All right, Dieter. Well, 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 while I was listening, I was on the Internet, and I went to BGI, like in Bravo Golf, uh, India, BGI, and my good friend Bob Gutsman uh, in, still has on there the – Unit density spheres behavior in air, and to answer a question, uh, for instance, a typical a typical mold spore is in the five micrometer range. 
Some people call it five microns. That is the same. Yeah. Microns are used by biologists, micrometers, by aerosol uh, scientists. Anyway, um, it is about eight, uh, 0.08 centimeters per second. And I think if I didn't make a mistake, <clears throat> it's about um, 0.05 meters or among friends, yards per minute. So it takes some while for a five micrometer particle uh, to fall down. Now there's another problem that comes in here. This is unit density spheres, spheres of a density of one. Now a mold spore is not necessarily a, a sphere, so there is a, a, um, a factor to be, the size factor or the shape factor has to be taken into account. And I don't think that a mold spore is, has a density of one. It's not going to be off by very much. But anyway, you can download that one, go over to uh, BGI Incorporated, and go to, I think I wrote it down over here. No, I didn't. Oh, yeah, go to technical information, go under aerosols. And while you are there, you may as well click on the relationship between pore size and the filter efficiency. That will open your eyes, too. Filtration is not uh, running spaghetti through a colander. Filtration is a very complex uh, thing uh, uh, to be um, taken into account when you are measuring small particles. But uh, it is not sieving. Uh, filtration is filtration. Sieving is sieving. So anyway... Uh, I, do, I do agree with, with, with Mac on, <clears throat> on, on all the issues that we touched on. I mean, uh, in many instances, they are complex, and in many instances, uh, uh, with a little bit of common sense and a little bit of engineering sense, perhaps, uh, and nothing against um, uh, architects, you can uh, put your finger on a couple of problems in a hurry. Okay, Joe. All right. Well, Mac, I just want to say thanks, and um, I also wanted to mention for the listeners real quick before we go that um, I had promised to make an announcement today on there's a um, uh, a course on health effects of indoor allergens, molds, and endotoxin, October 6th through 8th in Charlottesville, Virginia. Indoor Biotechnologies is putting that on, and we'll have... Uh, Dr. Ava King on the show here, um, not next week, but the following week. From uh, She's the chief scientist at Indoor uh, Biotechnologies, and we'll have her on the show. And, um, Mac, I just want to thank you for joining us, and I uh, really appreciate your comments. Well, thanks a lot. Mac, uh, you know, you and I were having dinner earlier this week, and, you know, you, you gave my wife and I this entertaining uh, I guess, um, relationship uh, between bacteria and kind of poor little rich kids. And I was just wondering if you could kind of give that to our listeners. Real quick, a friend of mine called and asked about a sewage spill into a dirt crawl space. And I told him that, you know, if, it's, if there's standing water, it might be a health concern. But once sewage, this is the whole nature of septic systems, is to get that, those sewage bacteria introduced into the soil where they're rapidly killed off by the mean, nasty, tough, ghetto kids in the, in the dirt. The bacteria in the dirt are tough, and the, the bacteria that are harmful to human health are usually particularly adapted to survive in the soft, 
candy environment of the human gut, where it's kind of like the rich kid growing up in the suburbs being introduced into the wrong neighborhood when it gets into the dirt. The soil bacteria, the soil purifies itself. They say water runs clear after 100 miles. Well, dirt purifies itself, too, and we're, we're not going to see the soil being infested by human pathogens. Thank you. That's what we're talking about. I appreciate that. Mac, is there anything you'd like to add? I think you guys have asked a wide range of questions. It's really good. I like Dieter's point that a filter isn't like a spaghetti sieve. It's a tortuous path that you're making for the particles, but that's another half hour of talk, and we're not going to go off on that. I thought you guys asked great questions. We've only scratched the surface of an interesting subject, but that's what you guys do every week. That's right. How can our listeners contact you, Matt? P-E-A-R-C-0-1-0 at U-M-N. Dot edu umn like university of minnesota one, one more time edu. god give it one p word. yeah isn't that terrible if you can't write it down it's going to be tough but p e a r c zero one zero at umn dot edu okay before we right. sign off i'd like to thank our special guest mcgregor pierce my co-host radio joe Hughes, environmental land koalecki and the wingman chris boisel Also, special thanks to our technical director, Dr. Dieter Weil. But most importantly, you, our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us on our next broadcast of IEQ Radio. This has been another IEQ Radio production. 